William Booth, um, if you haven't read missionary biographies, you really should pick up some and read about the, bi- the different missionaries who have gone out. But in his biography, he tells a story, since Brandon brought him up today as his birthday, where two missionaries had been sent to India. And they wrote back to him and said, Dr. Booth, we have tried everything. We have fasted. We have prayed. We have used a big tent. We have tried to go from house to house. We've gone down to the local churches. We've tried everything, and nothing has brought revival. Please help us. What else can we do? He wrote back two words. Try tears. And the greatest revival in India's history broke out because it it broke their hearts that they hadn't come to that place in their prayers for the people of India. So just an interesting story. But um, biographies are great things for us to look at some of the saints. Okay, the book of James. We finished Hebrews. We learned about faith. We looked at last week that James is a very practical book, one of the most practical books with lots of applications. It's going to tell us some things, what we should be doing, what our life should look like, how our tongue should behave itself. We'll talk about that tonight. Because of that faith, how that faith should bring stability in our walk, how it should help us to demonstrate true love, how it should teach us to exercise humility, have self-control, and practice patience. Just a few things that James has talked to us about so far and will continue to talk to us about as we go through the book. He makes the statement, the thesis, that faith without works cannot be called faith. And we'll talk a little bit more about that to, to tonight. We saw that James practiced what he preached, being martyred for his faith, and as he was being killed and stoned, that he asked for forgiveness for those who were doing it. Straightforward words about practical Christian living. Chapter 1, he got right to the point. He said, consider it carefully, with nothing but joy, as you are unexpectedly surrounded by trials, knowing they produce, in, they produce endurance and steadfastness in your life. Bringing us to perfection. So as you handle the trials this last week and next week, know that they're bringing endurance and steadfast to you. They're accomplishing something in your life. And rejoice in them. Now that's always a hard one to say, but that's what James is telling us. He said, if you lack wisdom in that first chapter, ask, the Lord will give it to you. And I think that he's saying that we should ask wisdom for a couple reasons. Because God is sovereign. That's a good reason to get wisdom from him. God loves you and me. That's a good reason for him to give us wisdom. And his word is true. And so even as you open your Bible, say, Lord, give me some wisdom and see what his words will give you. Uh, Talks about being tempted to sin and that when we are tempted to sin, we're drawn away by our own lust, not by God, because good gifts come from the Father of lights from above. We were taught to be swift to hear. Listen well. Pay attention to those who are speaking Slow to speak. Don't complete the person's sentence for them. Don't complete their question. Have you ever done that when somebody's trying to get a question composed and you finish it for them? Slow to speak and then slow to wrath. And he ends that first chapter with what it says on the, on the board. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And last week, the idea the mess, behind the message was be determined in that. As you count it all joy, as you're a hearer of the word, as you're a doer of the word, be determined in it. Tonight's just do it. Tonight's sermon is just do it. And in the bulletin, um, 
there's a paragraph which, through um, encouragement from Pastor Brandon, I wrote. Um, I'm not used to doing that, but I said, okay. And he, uh, he was persistent, and uh, he prevailed. So, in the first part of your bulletin, it says, Counters and Hearers and Doers. James is the most practical of books for us as Christians today. While Hebrews focused on faith, James focuses on our application of the faith faith we say we have. On our walk of faith, we will experience trials, giving us the opportunity to prove our relationship with Jesus and demonstrate his nature in us. We who have been hearers of the word have the opportunity each day to be doers of it. May our study of James cause us to show responsibility to his word. Response to his love by our using our abilities. And you know what? That exercise for me was very good because it caused me to look at the whole book of James and try to get it down to what I really felt the Lord wanted us to have. So those of you who are teachers and some of you ladies out there and guys out there who are involved in teacher, when you get your message done, try to boil it down to three, four, five sentences. It's a little bit difficult because you're taking maybe 10 or 20 pages of notes and trying to condense it down, but it really helps you get a grasp of what, um, of what it's about. So thank you, Pastor Brandon. I appreciate that. Once I got into it. More practical discussion tonight on the way faith should be seen in our lives. We'll see how faith removes discrimination and favoritism within the fellowship. So let's look at the first part of James chapter 2. The first 13 verses, I'll read them to you. My brethren, my brothers and sisters, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand here or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality amongst yourself and become judges and uh, with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that's in it, Lord, and help us to apply it in Jesus' name. Amen. Where it says partiality there in the first verse, the King James says respect respect of persons, but most of the more modern translations say either favoritism or partiality. And often we do treat the well-dressed person or the person who dresses like us, the one who looks like us, the one who we think we can fit together with, 
um, a little different than that person that comes in that's shabby and maybe a little bit dirty, maybe a little bit not kept. I, I hope that we won't do that. I hope that when somebody comes into dinner, especially looking like they're hungry and looking like they've been on the street a little bit, we run, we run to them and we go over to them and we make sure that they're comfortable and that they're fed and they know how we do things around here. Jesus called the poor to follow him, and we see that in the disciples. He spent much time reaching out to the poor and to the needy. But you know, he didn't discriminate against the rich either. You remember Nicodemus? He was rich. He was the ruler of the Jewish party. The Jewish council came to him there in, the, uh, in John chapter 3. Zacchaeus was rich. Remember, we read that story. You've read that story over and over where he climbed up in the tree and then Jesus had dinner at his house. But it says he was a rich man. And then we read tonight about the rich young ruler in Mark 10. I know he's rich because um, he had many possessions. And I know he was young because Matthew says he was young. So Jesus didn't discriminate against the young or the rich either. He didn't discriminate. And we have to be so careful to do that. So those of us who are young, we need to be careful not to discriminate against the, against the less young. Okay? And those of us, who, those of you who aren't quite mature yet, you have to be careful not to discriminate against the more mature. So there's uh, always good ways to say those things. In Deuteronomy, we read in the law, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God the mighty and awesome God who shows no partiality. He doesn't take a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless, for the widow, and he loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. And I would pray that our dinner table would always be a place for strangers to come in and be fed. In Acts, Peter said, He opened his mouth and said, In truth, I have perceived that God shows no partiality, but even in every nation, whosoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. So important for us to get to know each other, not to have favorites, not to have partiality. Now, there are things that we do. The ladies get together in their group. The guys get together in their group. Some guys like to fish. Other guys like to hike. That's okay. That's not discriminating. But when we come together as a body, there should be no discrimination. I kind of made a list of what I thought might be wrong if we did discriminate or showed favoritism. And here's just a few that I wrote down. It's inconsistent with Christ's teaching. It insults people made in God's image. It is a byproduct of selfish motives. It goes against the biblical definition of love. It shows a lack of mercy to those less fortunate. It's hypocritical and it's sin. So just do it. That's what I'm saying. Don't discriminate. That's what James is saying. It's real simple. You who are of faith, don't discriminate against those who come. Now, Jesus had... It says there in verse 5 that, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Yes, the poor, the poor to whom Jesus came first. Jesus saw the inequity of what was going on by the rich people of, their, of that culture, the Roman rich people, the Jewish rich people. But even in the leadership of the church, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, Paul was addressing the foolishness of God and what was, what was happening. He, they were, he was trying to show them that, uh, well, he said it like this. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh and not many mighty and not many noble are called. 
And that's so true. And our movement, Calvary Chapel, is just full of a bunch of ordinary people who God used mightily to pastor various churches around the country and around the world, including, you know, our, our, our founding pastor, Pastor Chuck. So God has chosen to choose ordinary people, in most cases, to do those great things. Later, when Paul was writing to Timothy, he said this. He warns Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. For with some, they, they have strayed from the faith in greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And I think the warning about looking out to the people that have wealth or the people that have been blessed by God and paying attention to them is you get drawn into that. You get drawn into wanting that. You get drawn into maybe even being critical of why you don't have it. Hey, God, you know, I've been working hard for you and so-and-so over there has got a new motorhome or he's got a brand-new car and a bigger house than I have, but I'm sitting there, you know, setting up tables and, and, and cleaning the, <laughs> the tables off for dinner. But, you know, this was a problem when Jesus came into the culture, when he came into the world. He looked out there and he saw that the, the rich people were putting down the poor people. So he saw that. It was a problem in the young church. We've, we read about that, how people were right here. We read that James was telling people, don't pay attention to him. Don't give him special place. And it's still a problem in the church today. We still have to do that. And that's one of the things why... When we first set up the Sunday Night Bible Study, now Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks, you know, I insisted that the elders count the, the offering that goes into the agave box there and to never let a pastor know who gave what. Myself and Pastor Brandon have never seen the offerings. We only get a total, so we know if we can pay for the lights and stuff. But we've never seen what has been given. And I think that's so important because you don't want leadership in the church to make decisions based on who and who does not give. There should be no partiality in the church. In verse 8, James brings in the royal law. And don't we all love this one? Don't we all find this one just so easy for us to do? The royal law. It is to fulfill the law according to scriptures. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you do well, it says. Now, do we really love our neighbors as we love ourselves? Do we really take as much care with our neighbors and people that we come in contact with? I have a hard time. I fight sometimes with that when I, when I go for a walk with Mary around the neighborhood. I, I go by some houses that look like, man, they need Jesus. They really need Jesus. And I'm going to convict myself right now and probably my wife too. But I've never gone to their door and knocked on their door and said, Hi, you're new to the neighborhood. Here's a, here's a, a platter of cookies or something. And I've been in the neighborhood now for two years, so I don't have to do it. But, um, <laughs> but when we had the opportunity, we missed it. And we still walk by their house. We do try to say hi and get conversations going. But if I love my neighbor as myself, I'd make sure they knew about Jesus and heaven and hell. Verse 9 shows no par- says that partiality could be a sin. And then verses 10 to 13, he uses the law as an illustration. We can't keep it. We know that. We have to keep the whole thing, and it just can't be done. But if you're under the law of liberty, it says, then you are free to love and obey. You're out from under the law. In verse 25, James had introduced this to us in chapter 1, verse 25. 
But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the works, this one will be blessed in what he does. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be spreading a little love around. We're supposed to be taking the message of the gospel. We're supposed to be taking the attributes of our Lord and passing those around. The perfect law of liberty, the gospel rule of life to love. That's our responsibility. We are to aim at this high standard of holiness that cannot be obtained under the law, and that is to love. The principle of love takes the place of the letter of the law. So by the Spirit, we are free from the bondage of sin and free to obey the greater commandment to love. The gospel of the law of love is not based on external constraints, not do this and don't do that. It's based on eternal, uninhibited disposition to love. And when we have faith, we're supposed to demonstrate the law of liberty and the royal law as we go about life. The law of liberty is through God's mercy, and it frees us from the curse of the law so that we are free to love and obey the law of liberty, the royal law. They're both in there. Make sure that we practice that. And verse 13, it ends with mercy triumphs over judgment. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, it says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. But mercy triumphs over judgment. And so when you have the ability to judge somebody, you've caught them, you've got it righteously. This is my neighbor really messed up this time, I can go get him. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's the way we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to be judging them. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment. Now let's talk about how faith proves itself in our works, starting with what is it profit, brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, Depart in peace and be warned and filled, but you do not give him the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. But to you, who, but to, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with the works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Many would like to teach that Paul and James were at odds with each other. That James speaks of works and Paul speaks of faith. James actually emphasizes the results of faith, which is a changed life. 
Paul emphasizes the purpose of faith to bring us to salvation. And James emphasizes the results of our life, a changed life. Paul speaks of faith that produces works. And James speaks of the works that is produced by faith. But Paul does emphasize, and I think it's important for us to know this, that justification is by faith alone. In Ephesians 2, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of your wor- yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Knowing, in Galatians 2, he says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of by, by works, by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And I could have gotten you more scriptures that prove that Paul said that we're justified by faith alone. And I think we all know that. But Paul also said these statements. He said this one to the Thessalonians. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your works of faith. So he remembered that when he wrote to the Thessalonians. And labor of love and patience and of hope in our Lord, Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. So he said, I remember that you never ceased from your works of faith and your labor of love. To the Corinthians, he said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we would all say that about Paul. He believed saved by grace. And his grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than them all. And that's in 1 Corinthians 14. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. So the grace of God had come about in Paul and changed his life into a life of works. Because he went out and he did missionary trips. He did a lot of things to accomplish, to accomplish things. So in verse 14 there of, of that uh, section we read, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Can faith save him? He sets the principle that true faith will be accomplished by action. Now, remember that James was writing to a Jewish audience. Remember he said to the 12 tribes, I send this out. They have been under the law for centuries. Now they're under grace and faith for just a few years. So they've got to be struggling with this tradition. So what does it profit, he says, or there is no profit if someone says or makes a mere mere profession? Many people say, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but their life doesn't reflect it at all. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. So in verses 15 and 16, he gives an, uh, another example, uh, like he did the illustration of the rich man about partiality. He says, talks about the example of death, dead faith. If you say, depart, again, as opposed to doing, if you have words but you don't have any actions then you really haven't lived it out. And I think that's one of the things that we should do. And I'm so thankful for a couple of the guys are stepping up to do some uh, safety for us. We're going to call it safety, not security. Uh, They're not going to be dressed up in black uh, um, um, and fatigues and all that kind of stuff. But they're here for safety and security and all that type of stuff. But I want them to be prepared to meet that person that's a stranger that maybe doesn't look like he fits in or she fits in, but they've just 
kind of come on the property and be willing to get them some food from the food closet. I was even thinking we should even have a few changes of clothes around so that we could offer that to somebody, make sure they get sat down at the dinner table and introduced to somebody and could reach out to them. And so even though they might be trying to protect us, and they should, once they realize that this is a person in need, then I want them to be equipped to do whatever or at least be able to tap somebody on the shoulder and say, hey, Paul, this guy just came for the first night. Will you show him how dinner works? And that we would all be willing to step up to that if we're asked to do it. Might be uncomfortable the first time, but I would really hope that we can get to that point. So in verse 17, he says, faith without works is dead. Faith alone saves us. But you know what? Our faith is a living faith. It's not a dead faith. We have faith in a living God. And we are a living organism as a church. And so we're full of life. So James' whole point is that our works prove our faith. And the appeal of James is clear. It's very, uh, it's very straightforward. We can't see someone's faith. But we can see their works. We can see their efforts. We can see what they can do. Faith without work, you can't see faith without works, but you can demonstrate the reality of your faith by your works and by the things that you do. Then he gives us another example. He says, even the demons, they have no faith at all in God, but they believe in God. And because of that, they tremble because they know. In verses 20 to 24, another example, Abraham, he was justified by faith before he went to the mountain with Isaac. He was called that he, he was righteous before that and called the friend of God before that. But in obedience to the Lord, he still took him up on the mountain, willing to give his son. His works were obvious to us. Faith and works cooperated perfectly together in Abraham's life. In verse 22, his faith was shown to be true when he completed the work willing to sacrifice his son. Works must accomplish a genuine faith because genuine faith is always connected with regeneration. If your life has been regenerated, if you have been born again, if you've become a new creation in Christ, as it says in Corinthians, then there should be something different in your life. And there should be a progress of moving towards a sanctified life. If there is no evidence of a New life, was there genuine saving faith exercised? I'm going to ask ask that again in a question form. I'm not going to ask you to answer it, but I want you to think about it because I think it's kind of crux to what he's talking about. If there is no evidence of a new life, can there be genuine saving faith in your life? I had to deal with that this week. It was kind of interesting. I even had some conversations with my granddaughter. Grandma loves me whether I do my chores or not, was her example. And I said, yeah, but Grandma will know that you love her if you do the chores willingly from a beautiful spirit. Yeah, but she still loves me whether I do my chores or not. And so we had that whole dialogue as I was sharing some of the, my thoughts here. As I do. It's great having teenagers in the house because you get a different perspective on things. But he gives another example in verse 25. Rahab, a Gentile, a harlot of all things. Abraham, the father of the faith. A man, a righteous man, and that now Rahab, the harlot, the low-class Gentile, both had faith and both had works. And I think that's the interesting thing. Could you imagine 
the Jewish believers getting this letter comparing Rahab and Abraham in the same paragraph as examples of faith that works. The contrast for those Jewish readers was a reminder, don't discriminate. We called Abra- I called Abraham, but I also called Rahab. And the, clu- the conclusion is there in verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Paul wrote at the end of his life to Titus, a young pastor. And he says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. So Paul, as he's getting towards the end of his life, he comes to that place where he's telling the next generation works are important. They need to do them. I think it's important, too, that as we look at works, that they're never done out of contrition. They're never done because I make you feel guilty or Pastor Brandon makes you feel guilty or we beg you, please come and do this. It needs to be because you want to. It needs to be because you experience the life of the church and you want to help the life of the church to grow. And sometimes you might just come up and ask the open-ended question, what can I do to help? Okay, we'll fill, we'll fill in the blank. That's fine, too. But some of you may say, hey, I really want to help with the children's ministry. You know, I'd like to come in. I'd like to cook dinner one Sunday night. I'd like to bring my recipe for lasagna and come down and cook it. May I have the kitchen that night? We can work that out. So there's lots of different ways that we can do those types of things. But faith has um, a real expression in what we do. The next section is a tough one for us because we've mastered it and you wonder why pastor mike has to go over it one more time when i know i have this under control chapter three my brethren let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment for those of you who want to teach this is a careful warning because you will be judged by a higher um, Judge, basically the the term there for judgment is actually a higher court. It's like everybody else is going to be judged by the the California State Supreme Court, but those of you who teach are going to the federal Supreme Court. That's what the meaning of the word judgment is there. And so you're going to be called to a higher standard. James says, become not teachers. James has this strong admonishment for those who teach or want to teach that we need to take it, our responsibility seriously because the accountability is greater and there will be that stricter judgment. When Jesus was talking to his disciples in Luke chapter 12, he said, For everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of them, they will ask the more. In verse 2, I like, I like James from this because he says, We have all stumbled. He puts himself in with the people that he was writing to and in with us. For we have all stumbled in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. He includes himself. We all stumble. We all get tripped up. But he doesn't make an excuse for it. He wants us to stumble less. Now, in these next verses, we start to begin the conversation about our tongue. Faith controls the tongue, right? If I was to ask you how many of you are people of faith, I would see probably every hand in the building go up. 
If I was to ask you how many of you have complete control of your tongue in all circumstances, in all cases, I doubt that I would get the same response. So we have work to do. Indeed, we put bits in the horse's mouth that they may obey us, and we turn them and we turn their whole body. Look also at the ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, verse 6, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among the members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poisons. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the simple in the similitude or in the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings, my brethren. These things ought not to be. Does a spring set forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh water. James gives us a couple of examples, the horse and the ship, showing that with the bit, a horse can be pulled and moved in any direction. When I was young, um, in high school, I had a friend, Steve Edgar, and uh, his dad had a ranch out by Tribuco Canyon of about 500 acres. And we would go out there on the weekends. He had horses and cows and an old Jeep that we would drive around. And we just thought we were cool when we were probably 15 or 16. And we'd go out on the horses and we'd go for a ride. And he had this big, beautiful, big horse. And I know that I've got some horse people in the audience, so I'll try to get these names right. But anyhow, his was like a stallion, a strong, big horse. And and he would ride it. And there was this old mare that was like a humpback mare, but the hump went the wrong way. And, you know, it was, it was, it was comical, but that's what we had. So, so we'd go for a ride and we'd go out and we'd come back. And so one time I said, Steve, let me ride your horse. Let me, let me tell you, he said, okay. He said, but I'm tell you something. He's spirited and he's strong, but you have to be tough with the bit and he'll obey you. And he says, then as I got on the horse and we started out, he said, now, he said, I'm going to tell you one thing. Do not turn him towards the barn. And I said, okay. So we get out there a little ways and we're stopping. And pretty soon I turn him towards the barn. And he took off at a full gallop. The whole thing's going. I'm screaming all the way back to the barn. Because the minute that that happened, he knew he was going home. So Steve was trying to tell me that that bit really could take care of this big animal. And I was scared. I remember that. And he was laughing all the way behind me. He just was having a ball. So the rudder and the bit move these big things. They control the horse. They control the ship. They compares that to the tongue. It's a little member in our mouth, but it boasts great things. Don't we make some promises with it we haven't kept or never kept? I'll never do that again. I'm always going to do this from now on. I will never, you know, do well. You guys all know. We've all done it. And how great a fire it can bring, you know. And it's even the words that come out. That you don't mean. That came out wrong. You know, that's honey. That's not what I was trying to get across. You know, 
you, it, it, it just is full of poison because of the way that it is, is in our body. The bit and the rudder are small, but they're extremely important. Our tongue is small, but it is extremely important. If they're not in control, if the tongue is not in control, then we're not in control. The tongue has tremendous power. It has power for good, and it has power for evil. Our words can have long-lasting effects on people. I'm sure you have things that you remember that were words that were said that have an effect on you. That little story I gave you about William Booth, I probably read that when I was 20. But I remembered it because it impacted my life. Because that was the, the, that was the contrition that William was trying to tell those missionaries. That's what you've got to have. You've got to have a broken heart for the people you're trying to minister. So even a casual, sarcastic, or critical remark can have a lasting injury on another person. And haven't we all been guilty of that where we were joking around, kind of poking around, and then pretty soon we just went a little bit too far. We just went below the line and we said something and you could see it in their eyes that we hurt them, that we touched an area of their life that wasn't supposed to be touched. And so those words can can do a lot of damage. But on the other hand, a well-timed encouragement or compliment can inspire someone for the rest of their lives. And I'm sure you all have a scripture that those words that were spoken by someone have great meaning to you, or you have a a word or a proverb from some person that's been important in your life that you say, wow, you know, what he said there really means a lot to me. Um, Words are so important. The proverbs have a lot to say about the tongue. And I'm going to read you just a couple. Like a madman who throws firebands and arrows and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was just joking. Now, haven't you ever cut somebody down? You hurt them with your, with your talking. And then, oh, you know, I was Larry, I was just, I was just kidding. I really didn't mean that, what I said, you know. But sometimes we try to get out of what we said, the damage we've done. Here's one for us. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And when there are no talebearers, strife ceases. Proverbs 26. Proverbs 10. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for the lack of wisdom. Proverbs 12, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. So often when we see people who have a countenance that's down, sometimes just going up with a little bit of encouragement is something that would would be to to help. We know each other well enough that we should be able to look around at each other and say, you know what, I'm going to go sit with them tonight because they look like maybe they're just a little rushed tonight getting to church and maybe they could just use a good word. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. Sometimes we have great devotions, devotionals that we read, and they just touch us and they just really impact our lives. And aren't we thankful for those people who wrote those devotionals and gave us their thoughts and their words? They just mean so much to us. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Proverbs 18. 
So in verses 7 and 8, he talks about the difficulty of taming the tongue. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men. The tongue can be used for the highest calling of your life, worshiping the Creator God, worshiping God Almighty, worshiping the awesome God, the one who loves us so much. I set you up when I asked you to sing hallelujah, or when I sang it, let it, and you guys followed along. You guys sounded great. I'm sure God was blessed. Look, Dad, those people are singing hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Look at them. It's not on the agenda. It's not on the song sheet. It just happened. We use our tongue for that great privilege of praising God. For us who are born, well, and then we can use it to curse the, low, the lowest level. We curse men with it. Um, and guys, you know, people, we have a unique situation going on in our country in the political realm right now. Speak the truth in love. Speak your mind. Be respectful for everyone that's out there doing what they feel they're being led to do. Remember that God is sovereign. We're trusting in him for his will. But be careful not to use your tongue in an unchristlike manner as you speak about any of the candidates, whether you like them or you don't like them. You can say, I disagree with this policy. I disagree with that perspective. I don't like the way this person is going about that. I don't like the way this person is ridiculing everybody else or this person's putting that person down. You can say those things, but don't get caught up in it to where you're calling those people names. You're a Christian and people know you're a Christian and how you handle yourself out in the world matters. If you say you're a person of faith, the way that you speak again with about people, it is so important for those of us who are born again. It shouldn't be said that out of the same mouth proceeds blessings and cursings. When Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, he said, either make the tree good and the fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. And then he speaks to the Pharisees. Now, he got to do what he wanted to do. I'm, I'm saying James, James must have added to it. Brood of vipers. <laughs> How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word man speaks, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. tongue little thing it's created some problems for me in my life any of you had ever had a problem from things you've said okay i see enough smiles to let it go i'll just let it go we could have testimonies later verse 13 Let's talk a little bit about wisdom who is wise and understanding among you let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom 
But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast that he uh, that lie against the truth. The wisdom does not descend from above. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and self-envy things are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Real wisdom is not just head knowledge. Real wisdom and understanding will show in our lives by our conduct. And it will show with meekness. It will show with strength, but it will show in the way that we present ourselves. In verses 14, it, says, it talks about the character of earthly wisdom, bitter envy and self-seeking. It's just the opposite of meekness and the meekness of wisdom, which it mentions in verse 13. It has a boastful and lying attitudes. And so often we see that when people are um, put in positions where they just talk about themselves and the things they want. Verse 15, he makes it clear, it does not come from above. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 17, we read this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So the good things come from God. The good things of his grace and his mercy are the things that we've received. They came from God. But the things that come from below are earthly, sensual, and devilish. You know, those are the three spiritual foes of man, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So James picks up that same thought, earthly, sensual, and devilish. When, uh, when there is earthly, uh, worldly wisdom expressing itself, it always has that envy and self-seeking. And the things that it brings, it says there is confusion, confusion and evil things. But then he ends the chapter with a character of heavenly wisdom. The wisdom that comes from above brings fruit. And so he defines what is meant by the meekness of wisdom that we saw in verse 13. It says at the end of there, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. They're done by what you know, by what you hear, by what you understand, by what you've received from the Lord, from his word, from gatherings like this, from your own personal devotion times, from those things that you've done. That's what happens. And he says it's first it's pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's willing to yield. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's without partiality and without hypocrisy. That wisdom is the wisdom that are supposed to govern our lives and the works of our lives. In verse 18, the wise counsel, the wisdom from above, comes with the fruit of righteousness. That meekness of wisdom from above is the best. And it's taught peaceably by those who make peace. Remember back in chapter 3, the very first verse we looked at, there was that warning about being a teacher. At this time, culturally, 
the orators of the world. Pastor Brandon taught us in, in Hebrews. I think it was Hebrews, but it was about the orators and how that that was how you got famous. And that's what everybody was trying to do. And the church said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Peter. And it was about how good of a message they could have. And that was a carryover from the Greek philosophers of the day, from Socrates and Plato and all of those guys. And so orators or speakers were really good. And that's why I think James is cautioning anybody who wants to be a teacher to take it seriously. But that was the best people of society. That was the people who were being looked up to. And even in the church, I think that was taking place. And I think it even takes place today. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see church hopping being so prevalent is, wow, he's really a good speaker. Wow, he's really gifted. Wow, he's really colorful. Wow, he's really got great stories. Wow, wow, wow. And people go different places because there's different things. That's why we've chosen to go Genesis to Revelation, cover it all. And whether you're in the ladies' group or the men's group or I'm teaching or Pastor Brandon's teaching, there's a lot of variety in styles. And that's a good thing because you learn different things and you learn different ways. And we take different approaches. So in these two chapters tonight, James has given instructions on not showing partiality, proving that we are of faith, people of faith by our good works. If you desire to be a teacher, be careful. If in faith, we should control our tongue. If we're in the faith, we should control our tongue. And to depend upon his wisdom and not the world's wisdom. And I think that's so important to end on that note, that when we are seeking for direction in our life, are we going to the word of God? Are we going to people that we recognize that are faithful people, uh, people who um, uh, demonstrate their faith by the way that they live their lives? Are we going to... Or are we going to people who uh, are good fighters? Somebody who's going to tell us how to, how to win that case or, or beat that situation or get around and, and, uh, and uh, snooker that person so that we don't get, so that we get our way. So are we seeking wise counsel, people that are, that are wise, seeking it in his word and seeking it, of course, from the Lord in prayer. So practical things. And my, my, my words to you are this. Just, just do it. Just let your works show that you have faith in God. Control your tongue. You know, don't, don't let it get out of control. It sets, up, sets big fires. Seek God and seek his wisdom in everything that you do. Just do it. Just do what James is telling you. It's a practical book. You can read it. doesn't need a lot of commentary, commentary on it. It's just so straightforward. It's a great book, I think, to read and reread in, uh, in our own personal devotions. And ask the Lord openly to, to, speak, to speak to me about the way that we do things.